Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Welcome to the final, final word of 2015, or if you're listening to it in the future, the first final word of 2016. A bright new year ahead of you and a tired old year behind us. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the past. Incredible technology we have these days. And look, it's been a raw old year for the West Indies. It's been a pretty good year for Australia in the last third of it. And we've come to the end of the West Indies uh, v Australia series in terms of competitiveness, Adam. Australia have retained the Frank Worrell Trophy within seven days. Uh, some better signs on the field for the West Indies and some terrible signs off the field as well. We'll get into all of those topics later. But let's talk Australia, Adam. Confidence would be high, but uh, how realistic, how meaningful is the confidence of having beaten this uh, West Indies side so easily? I don't think it's for nothing that you have these players walking out of this series with some pretty statistically incredible records. I mean, Usman Khawaja's made 504 runs in three test matches back in the Australian side, averaging something like 126 and 300s to go with that. Similarly, Steve Smith ends the year with 1474 runs. Adam Voges, you know, the, only the second quickest to a thousand test runs as far as days are concerned. I mean, I know that's not overly competitive, but those things provide a huge amount of confidence to take this show on the road and win, win, win abroad. That Steve Smith said during the week, the most important way this team will be judged is how they perform internationally. And I think that's the that's the next step, really, isn't it? How they can take this and leverage into New Zealand. We did see some pretty hilarious numbers getting racked up, uh, culminating in Melbourne after Adam Voges' first innings when he averaged 542 against the West Indies. Uh, the highest average by any player <laughs> against any team in history by a factor of almost double. So the next best was Jacques Rudolph, who averaged 293 against Bangladesh. You know how they always do that thing when they assess statistics with batsmen? It's always a minimum of 20 innings. Well, he's yep. played 18 now, so he's two away from being judged against everyone else. And right. he averages 86. Or, or they and often do it by 1,000 runs, which he passed this year. Yes, not, well said. Not yeah. only this year, but he started in May, June. Started June. in early June. Yeah. Uh, made his, his maiden 100, and then he's gone on to uh, 1,000 runs for the year. Yeah, and I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago uh, in the lead-up to the Boxing Day test, and we went through how close he came to being dropped at Nottingham and how close that whole career was to you know fading away, really. And to think he's bounced out of that and made... 100 after 100 on, on home soil, and now he's an established leader within the Australian side. And he does it for laughs, too. I mean, how easy was that 100 on, on day one and day two at the MCG? He did it pretty much at the pace he chose. He He's such a mature player that he doesn't need to do anything or play any outlandish shots. He just It's like he brings his own bat and ball with him. It's, it's really quite a... A prolific runner form. I feel like that's the key. You'd see this thing with David Warner sometimes where he'd just get so carried away and he'd be like, I, I want to hit a reverse hit hook shot for six over, you know, over point. Like he'd just come up with some outrageous thing he wanted to try to do because he was just flying. And Vogue just goes, oh, I'll just keep driving down the ground. I'll just keep pulling, keep cutting. The thing with Warner is, you think that I read one one article that said that maybe he'd been taken down to the West Indies level in this series so far. Mm. That is, he's got the ability to turn it on in very competitive Test matches, but struggles against the West Indies, who are probably the weakest opposition he's had in his career so far. It, it, it felt an unorthodox innings when he scored five boundaries in his first eight balls on morning one of a Test match and just couldn't put it away. Well, I mean, precisely. But you wonder if he just gets so hungry for it, he goes, I can totally annihilate these guys. And mm. he just he just tries to overcook it, perhaps. Uh, James Pattinson was overcooking it a bit too. He kept overstepping the front crease every time he took a wicket at the MCG, which was annoying a few people, not least Darren Lehman. 
Yeah, yeah, not least us either, really. Not but, least James Pattinson, yeah. I imagine. But. Well, the Australian public, it was a lot of frustration there, but I think it's important that we, we steer the focus with Pattinson away from the no balls, as annoying as that is, and so the fact that he's a, a legitimate strike bowler again. He was, uh, he was strong at Melbourne. He bowled in really competitive zones through the majority of his spells. He was threatening getting the ball up nice and high at a decent clip as well. So I think that's what Australian cricket fans have been waiting for, to see James Pattinson you know, legitimately in the top three bowlers in the country again. And really, you'd think he's going to be there and thereabouts for a long time, provided he can keep his body right. Yeah, but that's what you worry about, whether his vertebrae is going to explode out of his back, you know, the way that he falls apart. You know, he fell apart because of his bowling action, remodelled it to be more sustainable, Tried it for one innings, didn't work, and went back to his old age. But he was asked about this uh, by Jared Waitley before one of the days play this week, and he said that um, he hasn't completely trashed the new action, so to speak. It's just that he's found a way of modifying it in such a way that he feels more comfortable charging in at the crease. So I think he's cognizant of the fact that he can't literally return to the way he started bowling when he first played for Australia, as that's unsustainable for his body. We've learnt that. But I think he, he's savvy enough to know that it's going to require a little bit of a mixture. Now, one of the questions is what goes on with the pace polling attack. You know, you've got Pattinson in there, you've got Stark who's injured but will come back, you've got Hazelwood going along well, but it seems like, you know, the glue, the thing that's made it work this summer has been Peter Siddle. He's mm. he's the guy who keeps the runs down where required. He was crucial in Adelaide to getting Kane Williamson out, for instance, um, by drying him up, d- depriving him of runs the only time in the series that they managed to keep him to low scores. Um and yet, look, he's got an ankle niggle. People say, well, he missed Sydney and Steve O'Keefe will come in as a second spinner. But then basically the talk is, well, how will Siddle get back? Whereas the talk should be, well, of course he should get back because he's, he's so important to that attack. Yeah, whilst I'm with you, I can understand why the talk goes in that direction. Once you lose your spot on the Australian side, whether it be through injury or through form, it's often hard to get it back. And, and Siddle uh, took six wickets at the Oval in, in the final test match of the Ashes and was comfortably Australia's best bowler in that, in that test match and was dropped for the next match. So, really, there's no continuity there. Uh, I think he should be playing in New Zealand where he's bowling his best suited on those tracks which are a fraction more green. But uh, whether whether they uh, resist that temptation of going for the, the, the quicker operators... Now, you're looking at... Not only have we got now in the Australian setup, you know, your, your Stark... Um, Pattinson types were out and out fast bowlers. Mitchell Marsh is bowling over 140 clicks an hour now as well. So that might actually help Siddle. I was thinking overnight. The fact that Marsh is bowling much quicker might be make it slightly more justifiable to have a guy that bowls 10 clicks slower. Absolutely fascinating character in the Australian team right now, Mitchell Marsh. Now, mm. in this summer, this summer of runs, this absolute glut of runs, he's barely got a bat. He's come in sort of when they're smacking declaration runs and, and hold out a couple of times. He's been declared on for sort of one-off 12 balls and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, one not out, really boosting the average. He's barely got a hit, but then his bowling has just gone through the roof. What we saw during the World Cup at the start of 2015 um, what I called at the time the worst five-wicket haul I'd ever seen in cricket, and I'd stand by that. It was garbage bowling that, that just lucked out with, with getting outfield catches. Now he's a fast bowler. Yeah, and he was a fast bowler before he remodelled his action, so he got injured, changed his action as well. Again, that thing where they try and make the bowlers more sustainable, and he has picked up... We said, again, to our pre-game coverage... Um, through the test match that he's picked up 10 to 12 kilometres in the last 12 months through his work with Craig McDermott. He's a different bowler now. When he first started playing for Australia in the UAE last year, he was bowling high 120s, and now he's regularly going through the 140 barrier, and that changes everything. And I feel like we've watched him progress over the last six months. I remember watching him play in a, in a couple of tour games during the, the West Indies and, and Ashes tours, and, and he bowled much quicker there, and I wondered what was whether this would 
you know, I guess whether it would flow through to the international arena. And this was the first time he'd really seen that. So he bowled excellently at Lords and made a contribution through this series. But this was the first time he looked like a threatening, genuine fast bowler. So with two spinners in the mix for Sydney, we'll see with more responsibility on his shoulders whether he can sustain that further. He's also carrying a lot of responsibility in that he's now, as, as of right now, the only Mitchell and the only Marsh mm. in the team. I mean, Rare. a team that traditionally has boasted maybe half a dozen combined Mitchells and Marshes. <laughs> um, he's the only one who carries both of the names, but now he's having to do all the Mitch and all the Marsh. Big responsibility. Massive responsibility. Back to the batting, though. You talk about Mitch Marsh not barely getting a hit. How about Peter Neville? Played the most important innings of his career to date at Adelaide to all but win Australia a test match when you reflect upon how close that margin was. Win of a series, indeed. He hasn't had a hit since. He could, could well be the first player to not bat and not bow an entire test series. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than likely that will occur if they pile on the runs in Sydney again. That is actually an incredible stat. I'm going to have to go and do some digging on that. Has that never happened before? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm merely speculating, but I'm, I'm tipping that's probably the case. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly guys who've got through a match without having done either, but to get through an entire A three-game series, series, you've got to think he'd be close. Yeah. He's keeping very tidily. I yeah. think Peter Neville has had a great summer. He's invisible. Despite barely batting, yeah. he's had a really good summer. He's good with the gloves. That's a good take off the no ball that he caught low to Hazelwood the other day, and I know that was recalled, but how about Hazelwood, pair of Nunfers? You don't see that from your strike bowler very often. I remember Glenn McGrath in the corresponding test match in 2000, 2001, actually doing that, and he's always compared to Glenn McGrath, so yet another reason that he's taken two Nunfers at the MCG in thrashing the West Indies inside four days. He's, he's a bit of a, a heavier kind of bowler, isn't he, than Glenn McGrath? Like, he's a, a, bit, a bit brisker, a bit, more, a bit more aggro, and a bit less just kind of tease you out. Yeah, I think that's right. Funny, the other day, we, there was great discussion about how slow Carlos Brathwaite was as a fast bowler. He's about Glenn McGrath's pace. High 120s, low 130s. Never stopped Glenn McGrath from taking wickets. I, I'm, I'm, we've talked about this at great length before, Jeff, but this need for speed, if you like, yeah. I do think is a bit over the top. People are obsessed. I think, yeah, McGrath would usually top out from memory at about 135. You know, yeah. That'd, that'd be, you know, that was sort of his range. Um, you know, and he could push it up a little bit if required. But um, look, we talked about Siddle probably missing Sydney, meaning the sock comes in. Steve O'Keefe, the left-arm spinner, who's been you know, one of those players who's routinely been shafted by national selectors. You know, there's a list of them. There's there's Michael Klinger, there's Brad Hodge, there's Steve O'Keefe. He's right up there in terms of players who've delivered at the highest level for years and years and years and basically never got a run. It's the classic case of where, in a cricket side, there are some positions which are specialists we can only afford to have one of them. And principally, that's a spinner and a wicketkeeper. You rarely have two spinners. You rarely oh, never have two, two keepers, of course. So he falls into the... The, you know, sort of purgatory of being the best spinner in the country domestically, but Nathan Lyon's the best, the best spinner full stop, so he's always going to play second fiddle. But it's almost certain that O'Keefe will go to Sri Lanka and to India in the next 15, 16 months, and I think it's quite savvy to play him in Sydney. I don't really care what the track looks like. Even if it's a green top, I'd still be inclined to play O'Keefe, partly for the same reason that I wanted to see Maxwell play in those two tests instead of Marsh. That is, Maxwell is going to play next year for Australia in Sri Lanka and the year after in India. There's some utility in having these players who are going to play later feel more comfortable in their skin, in their baggy green, mm. getting a bit more wear and tear in the baggy green, a few beer showers or whatever they do after the game, feeling yep. more established in the setup. And I think that's the case for O'Keefe this week. I would definitely play O'Keefe. And, 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 by, and by the same token, he's coming into his prime. Age 31... That is actually when you're meant to be at your best as an off-spinner. Uh, histor historically, that's how the numbers would suggest. So right. this should be when we're getting the best out of him anyway. 
Well, exactly. And, and also there's that kind of statistical buffer. You know, stats aren't the be-all and end-all, but people do get under pressure because of their career stats. You know, if you're averaging 33, people are on your back about it. Mm. If you have a feasting series like this, you know, like say Kawaja's had where he suddenly pushed his test average up to 46 or Voges up into the 80s, you know, they've got plenty of room then to, to lose a bit if they have a bad run and not get piled on because of the numbers. Sure. That's the kind of opportunity you need to afford to someone, you know, like you're saying, if you if, if say Maxwell's going to come into the side next year in Sri Lanka, it'd help him if he had a few easy runs at home against uh, whoever it was just to just to sort of make him feel like he's bedded into a test career. Oh, completely. I mean, imagine Maxwell had a came out and made a century in either of those two tests. Again, fairly yep. weak attack at, at Hobart. Who says he wouldn't know? Uh, then you've got a situation where he, where he comes to Sri Lanka having got that monkey off the back, if you yeah, like. Yeah, it's ticked off. And the same will go for Steve O'Keefe. If he can do well in Sydney, he's got a first-class average of less than 25, clearly a quality bowler, moving the ball away from the right-hander. The West Indies lineup has mostly right-handed batsmen. You'd expect he'll do quite well there. Uh, and that should put him in much better stead for the Sri Lanka tour, which comes up next winter. Steve O'Keefe will partner Nathan Lyon. Let's talk about him for a little bit. Please. Um, I mean, such a you, you can't help getting on board with Nathan Lyon. He's, he's just such a kind of ordinary, everyday guy um, who just happens to be turning into one of Australia's great spin bowlers. He's already the highest ever off spinner in terms of wickets taken. He went to 182 during the... Uh, during the Boxing Day test, so that took him past Jeff Lawson. It means we'll probably see his 200th wicket in Sri Lanka all going well. Um, and that gets him past Jeff Thompson and into the real elite of Australian wicket takers. You know, then you're sort of into the top 15 or so. Um, but he's, what, 27 years old. He could. He, he just turned 28, actually. So he's not far away from, well, you say the top 10, I think, from memory is 228 with, with Ray Lindwall. So he's going to be in the top 10 Australian bowlers by the middle of this year. That's extraordinary. I mean, you think I played, I've you know, talked before about having played with Nathan at club level, you know, back in 2009. And to think that same kid who was running around in Canberra grade cricket would now be one of Australia's greatest bowlers and certainly the most prolific spin bowler outside of, well, we think a spin bowler, I should say, of all time. It's a, it's a wonderful yarn. And what I always love about Nathan Lyon isn't so much about that, that first stint, that first chapter, that wonderful five for a goal, the ball that spun away from Sangakara, etc. It's how gritty he was to fight back when the going was tough in, in England in 2013 when he was dropped for Ashton Agar and earlier in the year when he was left out for Xavier Doherty in India. That was gutsy stuff and people never rated Nathan Lyon. They perennially wrote him off and here he is, 182 wickets and really I mean, the two figures I've got in, in, in headlights for him are, are Graham Swan's um, wicket tally. So Graham Swan took 255 test wickets. And then the great not Lance Gibbs. Off. Not far off at all. He could take maybe it next two years. Maybe not even that. And then the great Lance Gibbs, 309 test wickets. And he was always the gold standard for off spinners. That's not that far away. He could be a couple of years away from being not just elite in an Australian context, but all-time greatest off spinners with the exception of Matai early Durham. That's an interesting thought. All right, so he's just turned 28, you say. Yep. Say he could play... Look, Shane Warne retired at 38. Mm. So let's say Nathan Lyon played another 10 years. Let's say he averaged about 50 wickets a year, 500 to add to the 180 he's got at the moment. I see what you're doing. 682, <laughs> Warne, 708. He'd be within sniffing distance. Imagine how... How is Shane Warne going to react if sneaky little Nath Lyon <laughs> just Stephen Bradbury's him on the outside and just uh, sneaks past into top Australian wicket-taking contention in well, a decade's time? Well, if Nathan Lyon plays for 10 more years, he'll play more test matches than Sachin Tendulkar. That's one thing to note. Given the amount of tests that test... Uh, they'll play 150 tests over the next 10 years. So, first of all, he'll break all the records, which would be great for <laughs> other reasons. But if he did overtake Shane Warne, oh, what a great story that would be. It would be even better than the, than the one we've already seen. Let's, let's back it in. Nathan for 709. I don't, get there nice I don't think he's going to get Murali, but like the, the worn, you know, it's stretching. We've come this far, two more years, basically he's 40. 
Yeah. Who knows? Place he's a fit 40, man. How, how, how old is he going to be? If he plays, it'll, it'll be enough time to catch Morelli on 800 wickets. Well, why stop there? Why stop there? There may be a few more in waiting at the SCG, and uh, maybe Adam Voges can boost that 452 average against the Windies up into the 500 range. Yeah, imagine he makes a couple of hundreds in in Sydney <laughs> after in, two, in in the space of two innings, so 20 innings when that when that sort of marker comes in, he could have a higher average than Bradman. A couple of not out hundreds. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! That'll make. <laughs> just think about that for a moment. Stats men out there, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't calculated that quite yet, but I will yep. when I get home. All right. Yeah. Jim Maxwell often says, "Oh, Bradman made a few easy runs on flat tracks," <laughs> which is what everyone accuses all the batsmen these days of doing. True enough. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, ABC Grandstand. You are on the Final Word podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the middle of this West Indies v Australia series and we're going to talk about the visiting team a little bit. Better signs on the field, Adam, this week. We, we were very depressed after Hobart, but um, not so much with the ball where they were absolutely demolished in Melbourne, but with the bat, they actually showed a bit of fight. Yeah, they did. After day two, having lost six wickets, the bulk of them in that final session, it looks like they'd get steamrolled and lose 14 wickets on day three, exactly as they did in Hobart, and, and we'd have another three-day test match. But they showed real spirit and fight, and especially players like Bravo, who's I've just he's had so much respect in his last two test matches, having the ability to shut up shop, um, throw the anchor in, and and just really bat for pride. I mean, he would have known full well. He's an experienced cricketer. He knows they're not winning that test match, but he knows that the utility in doing what he's doing there and stretching his test to four days, it instills some confidence in the lineup or in, in the change rooms and means they might be able to do greater things going forward. It's all about laying a foundation. And yeah, it's not pretty when he bats for a couple of hundred balls for not many runs, but there's there's a broader objective at play here. And I think he's doing a fine job as a leader in this side. Yeah, it was it was really important. There was a period there in that first innings where he was 15 off uh, when he passed his 100 ball mark, I think. And he was getting criticised by some commentators, Lots which, of I, people. which I found bizarre. Going on what's Twitter, he, they were sledging him. What's he doing? Why isn't he? Why isn't he trying to score? He's not trying to score because he's laying down a marker. He's, he's saying to everyone else Correct. in the dressing room, "It's not that hard to face this bowling on this pitch and not get out. It's not that hard to bat for hours." Now he batted six hours for that eighty-one that he made over two days, and he said to his teammates, "This is." This is what you can do. This is this is the kind of resistance you can show. And then we saw that with Carlos Brathwaite when he came in down the order on debut, facing a hat trick ball on debut, and he stuck around and made a half century and, and batted quite persistently with Bravo because he was fired up. He said so in his end of day press conference that that you know watching Bravo had, had made him realise that someone needed to stand up with him. Yeah, there's a couple of points here. So Brathwaite comes in and swings for the pickets from almost the get go. That's his natural game. And we saw him bat in the tour game back in May in Antigua, and he does hit the long ball, and that's his natural disposition. But like you say, after he got out to that no ball, actually a couple of times to no balls, he realised that there's more to the game than just simply knocking the ball out of the park, and he, he showed some true resistance. And in the second dig, I was really impressed by Rajendra Chandrika's innings. I don't know what he made, 30 or 40-odd, but it was the way he did it. It was the way that he was reluctant to... He batted more than 100 balls for the first time in his test career. And I tell you what, facing 100 balls for him at the moment is more important than scoring a test century because that's someone who's been dismissed at will by the Australian lineup in his three test matches so far. And showing that he has the technique to survive in that environment is something he can draw from next week in Sydney and then next year and the year after that. So, I mean, yeah, 
not all lost for the West Indies. You're right, and that 100 ball mark, you know, the Ed Cowan ton, as we've referred yes. to it before, it's not actually a disparaging term because it is important. You need players who can do that. You need players who can face long innings. He made 37 in the end, uh, but he, he batted for hours to do it. Now, this is a guy who averages 25 in first-class cricket. He's He shouldn't be playing test cricket. It's unfair on him to mm. ask him to do it, um, and he's had to come in. He made a, a pair against Australia in the West Indies. Yeah, he made another globe in Hobart, made his average of 25 in the other innings in Hobart, but, you know, at least he's going to have a bit of confidence that he can actually survive against this attack, and if he can survive against it, he can score against it. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm really admiring the, the, the West Indy cricketers who are, who are out there really sticking it to the media as well. So, for example, Carlos Brathwaite, when he made that um, 50 odd. He came in and did the post game press conference, and he just said he, he was authoritative for the way he spoke. He spoke with determination, similar to Jason Holder, really, in the Caribbean earlier in the year. He, he's they're the sort of players you can build a line up around. Yeah, sure, they look imposing at six foot eight, and they can hit the long ball, and they they're fast bowlers. So they they look like the sort of characters you want in the side, but also the way they present themselves and the way they express themselves. Uh, I think that they're the right kind of cricketers to build this team around. Yeah, we've talked up Jason Holder a lot, and we've invested a lot of goodwill in him, um, which meant I was bitterly disappointed with how mm. he behaved, how he conducted himself after that match. Um, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, some feathers were ruffled in the West Indies camp by the West Indies commentator, Fazir Muhammad, who's commentating on ABC. Uh, for a couple of days, they said that he was banned from talking to players because they didn't like some comments that he'd made. Um, and then that was sort of backtracked on for the last day. But when Fazir interviewed Holder on the field, he was Holder was disgracefully rude to him. He... He just gave him the most peremptory sort of three-word answers. And it was only Chris Rogers actually had to intervene on the interview to start asking questions uh, so that Holder would answer them because he would speak to Rogers, but he wouldn't speak to Fazir Mohammed. Yeah, it was the height of petulance. I was out there witnessing that interview. And he had his arms crossed looking the other way while he was taking those questions. And it was just this sort of sense that I will not engage with your critique. And like you say, Jeff, this is, and as you've written at great length yesterday, this is a, a man who's been covering Caribbean cricket for 30-odd years, the only... Uh, member of the West Indies media pack who's made the journey out here and they're, and they're showing this d- degree of disrespect. Now, I agree they might have a point of difference with what he said. That's fair enough. They can take it up with him. But Fazir Muhammad's a man of integrity. If he's made a mistake, he'll acknowledge it. Uh, he doesn't need to be, um, if he has, that is. I'm not saying that he has. But if he has made a blue, he would say so. He's not the sort of guy who would, who would, who would all, stick fat with his all, original view. All he's done is said that the West Indies training looked uh, more slack than the Australian training. The Australian training looked more intense. Now, that's been backed up by anyone else who saw sure. the two sessions who said, yeah, that is how it looked. Um, it's not an unreasonable thing to say about a cricket team. And I think the idea that a commentator even has to account for it, the idea that, that a team representative can demand an explanation is rubbish in itself. There, there is no right to that. There is no... Um, need to be called to account as a commentator on the game. And what's, what's, again, doubly disappointing is that it comes after a day when Holder made a half century and, again, you know, he showed that he's a sort of cricketer on the field. He's got the, got the skills. The, the bit of chirp he was giving David Warner uh, when, when Warner was out there uh, on, on day three, that's impressive cricket. It shows he's got the backbone and the resilience for this task at hand. He's not going to run off to the IPL and cash in. He's not going to be the sort of guy like Andre Russell who we're not going to see playing test cricket in favour of the shortest form of the game. He's got the desire for this task, and I think that hopefully this is something you can learn from. Like you said, Jeff, we've backed in Holder massively over the last six months. And I really hope he's the sort of character who can reflect on his behaviour in the next six or seven days before Sydney, well, the next three or four days before Sydney, and come out and make amends there. Yeah, look, I think with him, uh, it's probably a thing where he's young and inexperienced and he's been influenced by the management around him in, mm. the, in the team camp. You know, he wants to back them up and not do the wrong thing. Um, but the fact that you can influence a young captain to behave like that 
only shows the palace state of things behind the scenes. You know that that a coach can be so sensitive that he'll arc up about a comment being made about his training sessions or or whatever it is. You know, you're talking about you know Fazir Mohammed called called Brian Lara winning mm. that test in 1999. You know, he's literally the only West Indies journalist who follows them around who actually makes the effort to come on the tours because the team is so bad and there's so little interest back home. Um, and and to treat someone with that many decades of experience, who is one of the best cricket callers in the world and one of the most ethical, the most respected, the most um, upright. I just think it's incredibly sad. Yeah, well, it was lacking in any foresight. And I think there's a lot of West Indies cricketers who are around here on this tour, a lot of former players who are, who are linked to the side, of course, Clive Lloyd's been out here, Courtney Walsh, Kirtley Ambrose, who else we've got? Richie Richardson, who gave a fantastic interview with the team the other day. But what you're really looking for is some is someone to take West Indies cricket by the scruff of the neck and go, no, we're going to drag this out of the malaise. And, 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 and you need people in the media to support that goal. I mean, it's often talked about in politics. You need members of the media who are going on this journey with you when you're trying to enact major reform. And I don't think they've done themselves any favours this week. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. You're on the final, final, final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins for ABC Grandstand. And to take it out, look, we've got to look back at the year that was the best, the worst, the great, the terrible, the highs, the lows uh, in 2015. What are some of the things that jumped out at you for, for either reason, Adam? Yeah, it wouldn't be a podcast unless we reflected on the best and the worst of the year in our last edition. I'm going to go all the way back to the World Cup to kick the ball rolling here. That was a great World Cup. I think people were very cynical about it beforehand. They said, oh, where will the crowds be? Who's going to watch it? One day cricket's a mm. dying form of the game and various other cynical views. But, God, we watched it. We watched it and we watched it and we watched it. There were more crowds than ever before in a World Cup, more eyeballs on TV. So it was a raging success and, and congratulations to the administrators for pulling that off. But I think we especially enjoyed the work of the affiliate nations. So, so those yeah. four countries who were playing in that World Cup who have... Who's, who's really, their, their, their life in cricket is in jeopardy now due to the ICC reducing that World Cup to 10 in future years. But I'll never forget Shapur Zadran's um, nerdle down to third man. It was the, to, to, to win that game uh, against Scotland, their first ever win in World Cup cricket and, redu- and falling to his knees and arms in the air, throwing his head back. That's one of the enduring images of 2015 for me. I think that's one of the enduring images of cricket forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and the other great story out of that being Shaiman Anwar, the number six for yep. UAE, who just produced a string of great... Uh, he was just putting out fires every game, but he made a brilliant 100 against Ireland. Um, he made sort of 50s and 60s against a lot of sides, and, and he was just so... He was... In, Loving being there and just boshing attacks around and having the best time doing it. He's, this is a guy who hit seven sixes in a club match once in the Emirates. Yeah, yeah. sorry, seven sixes in an over in a club match. Hit, remember, one, hit one off a no ball and then every other ball. I'm sure you remember when he took guard about three stumps outside the off stump as yeah. well. He's just so resourceful, such a, cr- a creative character. It was illustrative of the fact that these associations have a lot to offer the game. And if the ICC do go ahead with reducing the next tournament to 10 teams, it would be an absolute utter disgrace. Yeah, it'll be a farce. I mean, it, it's covered quite a bit in um, the, the film Death of a Gentleman, which came out this year, which I think is a, a highlight for cricket as well, something that really looks mm. behind the scenes at the management. And, you know, we saw all that come to a head this um, with with the big three reorganisation of cricket and the carve-off of the money. And, and this short-sighted thing of wanting to keep making money by playing amongst themselves without actually trying to grow the game in other countries. And it was great being at the MCG on the World Cup final, full house at the G for a limited overs game. You don't see that every year and, and, and Australia obviously doing so well there. The atmosphere, that first over where Mitchell Stark charged in and picked up Brendan McCullum, I've, I don't think I've been to a game where, where, the, where, the, where, where, where in Australia anyway, maybe in England on occasion, but where the ground is heaving quite like that 
So I the hope. the India South Africa game at the G was that for me. It was an even mm. better atmosphere than the final because they they cheered everything, every dot ball, every single you know everything was an amazing uh, feat by the team. You know, and a couple of games over in New Zealand. So when they when they best Australia with that chase of one hundred and fifty odd in about twelve overs with that with that Kane Williamson finishing it with a six first ball that nine over. wickets down nine wickets down that was crazy. Mitchell Stark six wickets and the semi final. I mean that's that's one of the best games I've ever seen. The South Africa New Zealand semi final yes. with Grant Elliott. Pongoing that that last ball into the grandstands and, and and sending New Zealand through to the final and reducing South African players to tears that was that was wonderful yeah, cricket. Ex South African himself. There um, he was. For me, one of the standouts of 2015 was Mitchell Stark in the 50 over game. Now, whether that's at domestic level or international, during the World Cup, um, you know, I haven't run the updated numbers yet, but he at that point he had the best bowling average and the best strike rate in one day cricket in history. That's right, um, yeah. and that was from about 38 games. He was absolutely flying during the Matador Cup here. He took 26 wickets. Seventeen of them were bowled. Like, all he does is just bowl and hit the stumps. But you know, incredible stats. He's got five five wicket hauls from forty six games. Wasim Akram took six from three hundred and fifty six games. Oh. Think about that for a minute. That's their big numbers. Yeah, incredible. And numbers. it was the way he used that platform to leverage into being the attack leader. I think Mitchell Stark was considered a bit of a luxury item the previous summer. He certainly wasn't the attack leader. And due to what he did with the white ball, it meant that by the time he got to the Caribbean in the middle of the year, and, and certainly the Ashes, he was the attack leader. Now, there's question marks over his head when it comes to how effective he is with the red ball in terms of consistency. But there's no doubting his pace, no doubting his lethal ability to hit stumps and someone who obviously now has taken massive strides in 2015. So one of the worst things for Australia and the best things for basically anybody else was watching Stuart Broad take those eight wickets in an hour at Trent Bridge. We had the great fortune in, in the press box of sitting right above the sight screen and like you rarely talk about perfection with bowlers. Often with batsmen you'll say it was a perfect innings but bowlers don't get lauded with that very often. This was the perfect spell. Every ball hit the edge. Every ball was taken in the slips. It was just a work of art and to see the way they celebrated after each wicket they knew it was the most important test match like in a generation for Australia and they capitulated in the space of what was about an hour and a half or something like that. And watching Broad go through his paces there, we were, see, we, we were seeing something incredibly special. And I think everybody knew that at the time. And yeah, I think you're right in saying that everyone who was an Australian took great pleasure in it. But I think even Australians could see we were seeing something that was rare and unique. The incredible observation from that was that until Nathan Lyon came out to bat at number 11, no one had played and missed every yeah. single shot at the ball had taken an edge. It was just one of those days. I mean, it, the place was just extraordinary. Trent Bridge that morning of, you know, you just don't experience much... You don't experience things like that at sporting events very often where the place was just... It, had this, it wasn't a hum, it was a screech about it. it was like, place was just roaring from ball one to the end of that innings. It was just a marvellous day to be at. Highs and lows in that same series. Lows in the way that the likes of Brad Haddon, Ryan Harris, Shane Watson, Michael Clark all went out of the game with a tinge of sadness about it. And then this high in that Chris Rogers seemed to actually go out on top despite losing that series. He made that big 173 at Lords, um, and he seemed to be so fulfilled in the career that he'd had. He totally nailed it. A guy who'd played so much first-class cricket, waited so long for a sustained opportunity to make a century at Lords, the ground where he'd played so well for Middlesex's skipper. He said after the game, after that innings, it was the most special moment of his career. And you could really see that. It was palpable when he made that 100, how much it meant to him. And he was Australia's most important contributor across the series too, in terms of consistency. And I think that, you know, to, to, to have the self-awareness to go out on top like that means that he'll forever be very well regarded in the Australian public I'll struggle to forget the dual sadness of a seeing Ryan Harris end his career in a tent in mm. Chelmsford um, and then B sort of do a farewell lap at Brisbane to a ground that was about a quarter full. 
Yeah, it was odd, wasn't it? I, I do remember that, that Chelmsford press conference with about 200 people in the ground by the end of that four-day fixture. And there, it did seem like there was some injustice there. But by contrast, Dart got the farewell test at the Oval and got the guard of honour. And likewise, Mitchell Johnson, who, of course, retired this year as well. We can't forget him and all of that. And I'd say that seeing him bowl one last time at Lords as quick as he did was a real highlight, but also a low light in that we knew that it was a, a fading star as well. So some players got to see it off well. Shane Watson, like we kind of knew it was over with Shane Watson going into that Cardiff test if he didn't score runs. And oh, then... but the way it happened, oh, like two LBWs, two, two failed reviews, and he had to review them. He had no choice either time. They were five for not many. That's and... right. Uh, I remember running down and, and filming those rev- uh, that that last that last dismissal, most of that last innings, and just the pain he was going through when he was walking back off that day. I mean, we're obviously big fans of Shane Watson, and, and we hope he can continue to play well in the white ball for Australia. But again, it was illustrative of a guy who'd made a massive contribution, but got, could, would have wished to have gone out any other way. The real upside out of England was the performance of the Southern Stars, who mm. uh, dominated in winning the Women's Ashes, won the Test match comprehensively. Uh, Elise Perry's new ball spells in that game were devastating and then Jess Jonathan with that 99 just missed out on the 100 but reinvented herself as a top order bat when she'd previously been a left arm spinner. Yeah, Jess Jonathan's my favourite cricketer in Australia. She, she's the most technically correct player, man or woman, uh, going around. She's stunning to watch driving down the ground. As for Elise, both times um, coming in uh, um, after lunch, I said at the time, what's in the sandwiches? Taking two wickets in and over um, in her first over after lunch on both day two and day four of that fixture and really made sure that the Southern Stars got the got the points for the test win. And really, that's what the series came down to. If they, if they take a draw there, um, because the way that England played in the T20, the multi-point format of the competition, Australia may not have won that Ashes series. So Elise Perry, as the player of the series, was absolutely integral, and especially the way she bowled in that test match. Highlight. For me, Kane Williamson, the way he played this mm. year. He's been underrated because he hasn't made quite as many runs as others, but he hasn't played as many games. He played eight tests where most of the Australians played, what, 13? Mm. Um, he made five centuries, average 90, made 1,172 runs in the year. How often do you see a 1,000-run year from eight test matches? Yeah, it says a lot about you know the fact that we've got this fab four now. Williamson this year has taken himself from someone who I think people knew about Kane Williamson 12 months yes. ago, but now they, they, can't, they can't speak about Smith Coley without adding yes. Root and Williamson. He's undisputable. He's not, he's not coming. He's, he's arrived. Yeah, and I think the same goes for Jay Root. I think, I think 12 months ago, people knew he was a star, but it, it took the the dual Ashes hundreds and quite a few times Roots made big scores without making a hundred as well. He probably has that one um, thing left in his game he needs to work on, which is converting. But all the same, these four guys are all about 25 or 26. They all bat number three or number four. And I think that it's incredibly exciting to think that we might have a generation where these four duke it out for the best player in the world and something that we should you know, be really looking forward to, along with the older guys who, are, I say David Warner is older, but Warner and Davilias, what years they had as well. I mean, David Warner um, with that string of hundreds and, and A.B. Davilias. Remember, he started the year with that, was it a 30, 31, ball, 31 ball 100? That was on yep. New Year's Day, I think. So we go all the way back to the very start. A.B. Davilias is the most resourceful player in cricket, either being able to make a quick century or, or as we saw in India recently, dig in for hours and hours and hours on end, just knocking the ball on the head. Yeah, he could make... Uh what, 15 off 200 balls or find a way to make 200 off 15 balls if you really <laughs> wanted to. Um, a highlight of the year for me would be Misbah Haq, the way he's oh. continued gelling this Pakistan side in exile. Uh, when he made that century against England, I think it, it meant that he'd made more tonnes after the age of 40 than anyone since Jack Hobbs. What a remarkable story. The, the, the state he took over Pakistan cricket in 2010 in the backdrop of the spot-fixing scandal in taking them to number two in the world. It's, it's, I cannot wait till I come to Australia next year and I'll do anything for Misbah to be the captain. I know they go to England first, and, and he may decide to 
seat out there. And he's going to play some county cricket in England beforehand, which indicates maybe he's looking at that being the, the last hurrah. But if he does come to Australia, it would be great for world cricket. And unfortunately, on the, on the, on the rough side of that, Yassi Shah, who was the absolute standout spin bowler in the world this year, you know, just along with Nathan Lyon, but Yassi Shah in terms of bowling wrist spin, it was something really special to see someone doing it that well to get pulled up for a bloody drugs ban last week. You can't take a break with Pakistan cricket. Just when something's good, yes. uh, I don't know. And, what what and can you say? He, he would be the key. If they came to Australia, the key to them winning a series here would be having a leg spinner. Mm. That, that would be the thing that would make the difference. Um, he took 76 wickets in his first 12 tests, You know, the, the second most in that many tests in test history. He's bowled incredibly well. Stunning. And and to to get yourself booted on some technicality like that, and it's not something that bothers me particularly. I mean, drugs don't help you be a better cricketer. Like, if they help you recover from an injury, well, well I don't see how that's different to any other medical treatment. But, but he was stupid enough to get himself embroiled in that, you know, uh, and, and to to get himself a positive test. You know, that story has a long way to run, but it's just so disappointing and so depressing to see the most exciting bowler in the world for mine potentially rubbed out for two years. Yeah, I don't necessarily share your view about, about, um, about drugs and injuries, but I do share your dismay. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a cricketer who was on the cusp of becoming the most important bowler in world cricket, and now we've lost him for two years. It's a bloody debacle. But, of course, the greatest thing that happened in 2015, above everything else, above all, was uh, Glenn Maxwell. Just, oh. just being there. Just being there, doing what he does. That day at Headingley, when he went out and made 80-odd and batted beautifully, only got himself out when the spin of Moeen Ali came on, he decided to start reverse sweeping. And before that, he batted like a dream. Then to take a wicket and bowl a tidy spell in the middle session. And those two catches, they're the best two catches I've ever seen. In the space of 10 minutes. Yeah, and he still didn't win man of the match because some other guy made 100. Outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. But that's what he is and that's what he does. G Maxwell... He'll no doubt be featuring more in cricket in 2016, which C- will certainly more in our discussions <laughs> to, to the chagrin of some and the joy of others. Uh, bless him and the ship that he sails in. This is the final word with ABC Grandstand. That's enough from us at the end of 2015 or the start of 2016. Wherever you are, charge on into your new year with heads held high. Uh, we'll be back next week after the Sydney Test. Tune in then for the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins.